Welcome to the PCC Podcast, your place for CNS soundbites. Hi, I'm John Shelton, publisher of the Primary Care Companion for CNS Disorders. In this episode, I'll bring you up to date on the important peer-reviewed research and reviews from our latest issue. Let's get started. Resident physicians often provide care for patients diagnosed with mental illness and substance use disorders. Clinicians, including psychiatrists and addiction specialists, have been shown to possess negative attitudes towards these individuals, which is concerning since negative attitudes may have an adverse impact on patient engagement, treatment, and outcomes. However, little is known about resident physicians' attitudes towards individuals with mental illness and substance use disorders. This study explored the attitudes of emergency medicine internal medicine, and obstetrics gynecology residents towards these patients. A total of 411 residents completed a web-based questionnaire that included the 11-item medical condition regard scale for individuals with four different diagnoses, which assesses the degree to which clinicians find individuals with a given medical condition to be enjoyable, treatable, and worthy of medical resources. Respondents had more negative attitudes towards individuals with diagnoses of substance use disorders with and without schizophrenia than towards those with diagnoses of schizophrenia or major depressive disorder alone. Senior residents possessed more negative attitudes towards individuals with substance use disorders than did junior residents. Emergency medicine residents had more negative attitudes than the other resident physician groups. Hypothesized reasons for negative attitudes towards individuals with substance use disorders include the perceived lack of skills, resources, and time to adequately care for these patients, exposure to the hidden curriculum of medical training, and reinforcement of negative societal and moralistic attitudes. Additional research and programmatic work are needed to understand the reasons for these negative attitudes and to develop interventions during residency training to improve them. Psychiatric disorder has been found to co-occur in sex offenders in civilian populations, but what is the incidence in military service members charged with this type of offense? This study examined the prevalence of psychiatric disorders among service members charged with sexual offenses. The sample comprised of service members charged with any type of sexual offense and referred for forensic evaluation. Forensic mental health evaluations, such as competency to stand trial, criminal responsibility, and risk assessment, of service members charged with sexual offenses were examined and the assigned clinical diagnoses were enumerated. Findings suggest that alcohol use disorder is the most prevalent disorder, both at time of offense and at time of the forensic evaluation. The two most prominent diagnostic categories were substance use disorders and trauma and stress-related disorders. Identification and treatment of psychiatric disorders among service members charged with sexual offenses may facilitate rehabilitation, reduce recidivism, and offer public health benefits. 
the author suggests that this topic should be further studied in a larger sample to effectively address this public health problem. The goal of this study was to provide a comprehensive profile of veterans by characterizing differences between veterans who use VA health services and those who do not. The study found that the primary characteristic that differentiated VA health services users from non-users was the presence of a lifetime psychiatric diagnosis, such as depression, anxiety, or PTSD. Overall, results suggest that veterans who use VA health services have a substantially elevated health burden compared to other veterans. Importantly, several independent studies have demonstrated that the VA performs better than or similar to other healthcare systems on measures of safety, effectiveness, mortality, and morbidity, as well as quality of care. Despite these encouraging findings and many new developments in the VA, many veterans do not use VA healthcare services for a wide range of reasons, such as excessive wait times and difficulties navigating services. In this study, only about 16% of veterans were found to utilize the VA as their primary source of healthcare. However, the authors point out that the research has shown that 92% of veterans would rather improve the VA system than dismantle it. The results from this study may help inform outreach and engagement initiatives targeting the unique health care needs of veterans. Specifically, there is an increased need for specialty VA services targeting PTSD, depression, anxiety, drug use disorder, and suicidality. Since the VA performs better or comparable to other healthcare systems, there is a heightened need for education programs to increase access to information about healthcare, decrease stigma around mental health care, and help veterans navigate barriers to care. The National Health and Resilience in Veterans Study was funded by the U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs National Center for Post-Traumatic Stress Disorder. Preparation of this manuscript was supported in part by a VA Rehabilitation Research and Development Center Career Development Award granted to one of the authors. How can we improve rates of treatment for patients with mental and behavioral health concerns? Previous research has found that patients seen by a behavioral health provider immediately after a primary care appointment were almost one and a half times more likely to attend another mental health appointment than those who did not. In the current study, the authors wanted to learn more about what was occurring during the integrated behavioral health appointment that may contribute to improved rates of follow-up care. They predicted that perceptions about treatment might change after patients talked with a behavioral health provider. To test this hypothesis, they used a brief measure to assess beliefs and treatment before and after the behavioral health session. Patients reported improved beliefs about treatment after the brief behavioral health session, which averaged fewer than 25 minutes. For example, patients reported they would have fewer bothersome symptoms as a result of attending a behavioral health appointment, felt treatment would be valuable and beneficial, felt they would have time to spend in treatment, and felt that behavioral health specialists were understanding. Patients also reported 
high satisfaction with the initial behavioral health appointment. Finally, more than two-thirds of patients for whom further treatment was recommended attended a second behavioral health appointment. This study adds to the growing body of research on the benefits associated with integrated behavioral health and investigates the potential mechanisms associated with the success of the single appointment. This study examined rates of substance use in major psychiatric disorders between U.S.-born and foreign-born Mexican-Americans and non-Hispanic whites and between early versus later entry foreign-born Mexican-Americans and non-Hispanic whites. This study was based on a large representative sample of U.S. adults. The study showed that foreign-born Mexican-Americans and foreign-born non-Hispanic whites were at significantly lower risk of alcohol, nicotine, and other drug use and major psychiatric disorders than their U.S.-born counterparts. These results suggest that individuals with good mental health may be more likely to immigrate to the United States than those with poor mental health. Further, both foreign-born Mexican-Americans and foreign-born non-Hispanic whites entering the United States before the age of 18 were at greater risk of substance use and some psychiatric disorders compared with those entering the United States when 18 years or older. In terms of mental health screening, prevention, and intervention, it is important to understand the protective effects of cultural retention among the foreign-born and the deleterious effects of accumulated stress on substance use and psychiatric disorders among the foreign-born arriving in the United States prior to age 18. This study was sponsored by the National Institute on Alcohol Abuse and Alcoholism with supplemental funding from the National Institute on Drug Abuse. Anxiety is prevalent among chronically ill older patients and is disabling. Elderly outpatients with high anxiety frequently visit doctors but receive relatively few mental health services. Among nursing home residents, pain, pharmacotherapies for treatment of depression, and suboptimal quality of life are consistently associated with anxiety. However, intervention is often difficult for clinicians. For example, clinicians must balance the risk of medication-induced falls with the distress and impairment caused by the anxiety. This narrative review provides the most up-to-date information on the treatment of anxiety in the elderly population. Interventions include various psychotherapies, pharmacotherapies, and stress reduction techniques. The authors point out that when prescribing, it is especially important to consider geriatric patient problems, such as unstable gait, reduced metabolism, and medication interactions. In addition to therapeutic benefits, psychotropic medications carry iatrogenic risks. Medication monitoring helps minimize this risk and is an essential part of safe prescribing reflected in professional guidelines and recommendations. However, these guidelines have not been summarized in one place for clinicians' easy access. The authors of this issue's continuing medical education offering reviewed a wide range of these sources and compiled monitoring recommendations along with a one-page quick guide for reference geared towards prescribers in primary care psychiatry. 
The authors reviewed large institutionalized guidelines from the United States, United Kingdom, Canada, Australia, and New Zealand, combined with manual searches for psychiatric medication monitoring consensus and other recommendations. Any available guidelines and consensus statements making psychotropic medication monitoring recommendations for treatment of adults and published in English were included. The authors point out that psychotropic medication monitoring recommendations vary by source, but there is considerable agreement among English language sources, which can be readily summarized for teaching and everyday use. Better access to monitoring recommendations will improve safe psychotropic prescribing. A quick guide to psychotropic monitoring will facilitate teaching and make it easier for providers to remember. Traumatic brain injury, or TBI, has had increased notoriety in light of chronic traumatic encephalopathy in professional sports. However, Despite the increased rate at which mood disorders affect this population, there remains little information on management of these disorders. TBI has also been implicated in the development of Parkinson's disease, increasing the likelihood that patients may be treated with dopaminergic agents. Management of coexisting pathologies can become challenging, especially when confounded by medication side effects. In this brief report, a case is presented of a 58-year-old man who was admitted to the hospital in a manic state 15 years after having suffered a closed head injury. Several psychiatric admissions during the past two years were noted with various diagnoses, including different iterations of bipolar disorder. Among his medications, levodopa carbidopa was present for an unsubstantiated Parkinson's disease diagnosis, as many are resolved after discontinuation of the agent. This case is presented with a review of the relevant literature pertaining to the use of levodopa carbidopa in this context and the use of other dopaminergic agents and a biologic hypothesis for the potential increased likelihood of manic symptoms in TBI patients who receive levodopa carbidopa. Currently, there is a lack of research in this area, which emphasizes a need to review treatment guidelines for Parkinson's disease patients with TBI. The rate of suicidal ideation in youths is around 20%. Suicide attempts have reached 9%, and completed suicides account for almost 10% of all deaths among adolescents and young adults around the world, making suicide the third leading single cause of death in this population. In fact, in several countries, the rate of suicide in children has gradually increased since the turn of our century. And the decreasing age at onset of self-harm and increasingly lethal methods indicate the need for targeted interventions in key transition stages for young people. For these reasons, we've just released our newest curated collection, Unmasking Suicide in Youth. Dr. Philippe Corte, editor of the Journal of Clinical Psychiatry's Focus on Suicide special section, further elaborates in his pointed introduction on the need for readers to learn more about the high risk of suicide among our young people. 
At nearly 200 pages, the collection contains 16 articles from the Primary Care Companion for CNS Disorders and the Journal of Clinical Psychiatry and costs only $75. To find the collection, go to psychiatrist.com and enter the keyword suicide. You can also find it on our journal home pages. Please visit us online at primarycarecompanion.com to find numerous case reports on a variety of topics. You can also browse interactive activities from our CME Institute. We update our website weekly with new postings, so there is always something new to explore. As an all-electronic journal, PCC has an unlimited amount of space in which to publish articles and features. We welcome ideas that any of you may bring to our attention, for we want to expand both the breadth and depth of our articles and specialty sections. Please take advantage of the open invitation to join many of your colleagues in submitting your research to PCC. We also ask that you keep us abreast of trends you see in your practice and topics that would be interesting to explore. Thanks for joining me for this summary of offerings in our current issue of the Primary Care Companion for CNS Disorders. This is John Shelton signing off. I hope you will join me for the next installment of the PCC Podcast, your place for CNS Soundbites.